Hello team and welcome to episode 378 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brendan from Master Talk. Brendan is the founder of Master Talk, where he coaches ambitious executives and entrepreneurs to become top 1% communicators in their industry. He also has a popular YouTube channel called Master Talk with the goal of providing free access to communication tools for everyone around the world. Communication is everything. We do it daily, it influences our lives, our relationships, so listen closely to this one. Plus, it was one of my favorite episodes in a while and you'll soon see why. In this episode, you can expect to learn why so many of us are terrified of public speaking and how we can reverse this, how to navigate tough conversations like salary negotiations, job interviews, and discussing challenging topics with our partners, along with some super practical strategies that will take you no more than five minutes a day so that you can learn to become an effective communicator. So without further ado, do Brendan from Master Talk. Brendan, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, it's great to be here, Elliot. Doing well, man. Hope you're doing well too. I'm glad to hear. I'm doing very well. And I'm excited to dive into our conversation today. But before we do, can you give the listeners a little bit of context on who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, for sure, Elliot. So for me, the origin story was when I was in college, I went to business school and I studied in accounting. So I was a numbers guy, which is really weird given what I do today. But I thought that was going to be my life. But then I was, as I was studying my degree, Elliot, I started competing in these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were playing rugby or basketball or footy or cricket, I wasn't one of those guys. I did presentations competitively, and that's how I learned how to speak. And then as I got older, I started coaching a bunch of students in college on how to communicate. And that's when the idea for Master Talk came, the YouTube channel, because I thought to myself, huh, like everything I'm coaching these students isn't really available for free on the internet. So I start making YouTube videos on communication. I call it Master Talk, and the rest is history. I love that. And what led you to being competitive in presentations of all things? Yeah, you would think I had a passion for speaking all my life, Elliot, but the truth is anything but. I'll tell you the story. So I'm a 19-year-old kid in my first semester of accounting in college, and somebody tells me that I should work for the big four accounting firms, PricewaterhouseCoopers, KPMG, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, they're kind of like these big accounting firms. And I was so lost, I thought PricewaterhouseCoopers was a water bottling company. That's how lost I was. So I, I go to these events, Elliot, these little cocktails that students host. And I asked kind of my idols, who are three years older than me, these 22-year-old kids who had landed jobs at these companies, and I just asked them, how did you get this job? And they all responded with, oh, I did case competition. I was like, what, what in the world is a case competition? And then they went on to explain that a lot of these accounting firms, they sponsor these competitions to hire the best people. So the reason I competed in them, Elliot, was because I wanted a job. It just accidentally became an obsession and what I ended up doing full-time with my life. For sure. And what did your first competition look like? I can imagine it wasn't always Brendan from Master Talk. It was Brendan who was probably stumbling over his words, working out words for the first time instead of numbers. What did that look like in your first time on presenting? I mean, all of the above, brother. Like, I remember my first case competition, 19, first semester, and it's for this big global packaging company. And we had to, basically, what the case was, is a very odd presentation that we had to give. The CEO of the company wanted us 
to sell shelf-stable cream to the Canadian market. So what does that mean? You know when you go to a coffee store like a Starbucks, you put cream in your coffee. But a lot of that cream is refrigerated, whereas in, in many parts in Europe, like where you're based in the UK, not, I don't think it's, it's true in the UK, but in like other parts of, of Europe, they don't actually refrigerate their cream. It's just shelf-stable, so you just use that. So the idea is how do you sell that to the Canadian market, which is really difficult because everyone is used to, to cold cream. So it's a very bizarre case for my first experience. But basically what we did is we made a commercial to stand out. So we went to a grocery store, we filmed with the packaging, but we really pissed off the CEO because we accidentally used a competitor's packaging. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. And we still ended up getting third place and he, and he liked us because we were young and spunky and energetic, but I was all over the place back then for sure. So after the first one, you caught the bug and you started going into these competitions all the time. Was that the case? Did you start winning some? Yeah, you got it. So I lost most of the case competitions that competed but but I did win a couple podiumed a couple times too and that's it was that experience really Elliot my love for competition where I just excelled in it and then the, the how that transitioned to coaching for free mostly in college was it's a student run program so then I started running the executive program with a bunch of other students and I was the one picking the students who would get into the delegation and I was telling the other people I was going you know 20% of the people we recruited this year they're really good at they're smart, but they're really bad communicators. So I need to coach them on how to speak or else they won't be good because I was one of the best speakers in the program. But I didn't know how to coach people how to do it. So I kind of figured it out on the spot. Sure. But I would probably want to start with that skill first. I feel like teaching people how to do things is probably, maybe you can argue with me against this, but probably easier than developing the skill in the first place. That's an interesting point. Here, Here's my belief. I think... Teaching the skill is actually harder than developing the skill. But it's not necessarily in disagreement to you, Elliot. I think the reason where, where I'm coming from is most people who are really talented at communication never teach it. So they're CEOs of big companies, they're politicians, they might be really, really high-end personal trainers, to use the context of this podcast as an example, right? They just go on and, and raise a bunch of money, they make a lot of money, they do well. But there's only a very small percentage of those people who are able to articulate how to get somebody else the result. So I actually think it's very rare, maybe not in other areas of life, but definitely in speaking for someone to have both the speaking talent and the talent to teach. And the talent to teach actually took me a lot longer than the talent to speak because I was already kind of naturally gifted at it. So it wasn't that much to teach. So I had to really go back to ground zero and go like, okay, if I was a doofus at this, how would I teach this to an absolute beginner? And that was really tough, kind of cracking my head around that. No, it's a fair point. I actually probably agree with you upon reflection as well. If I look at my own work that I do and I look at some of the people who know how to get themselves into shape, for example, it is one thing to be able to get yourself into a shape, but another thing to actually take someone through that journey and take countless people through that journey as well. You're not a coach once you've done it with one person. You need to be good at it and as you do, make people in the 1% of communicators time and time again. And as you've probably noticed, and what I noticed within my work is everyone has different stories, everyone has different bodies, different lifestyles, and you probably have the same situation in terms of taking people through the fundamentals, but ultimately seeing that they've got their own sticking points along the road of them becoming effective communicators, right? Very well said, yeah. And, and in that way, I would argue that communication is actually a lot easier than let's say fitness coaching. Because to your point, in fitness, you have to look at so many different variables. They might have a disease that prevents them from doing certain types of exercise 
exercises. Like I got a physical disability in my left arm, so it's really hard for me to do push-ups. So if I had a personal trainer that made me do push-ups, I could probably do a couple, but I'd fall on the floor pretty quickly. But sit-ups I could do all day long. So it's adjusting to that, the body type, the person. Resin speaking, you definitely have that customization, but it's not nearly as thorough as what the top 1% of fitness trainers are doing in their space for sure. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to ask the first big question on the communication aspect today, which is why are people so terrified of public speaking? You know, every coach is going to give you a different answer, but I'll give you the the one that I like the most, which is, let's take a common sense approach to this, Elliot, which is, where does the fear of communication start? Where do we learn how to present in a formal setting the first time? And the answer for most of us, frankly, is the education system. Whether you're born in the UK, whether you're born in Canada, the States, India, all those countries were presenting in high school, in middle school, in elementary school. But the problem, Elliot, is all of those presentations have three fundamental challenges. The first challenge is all of those presentations are mandatory. You don't wake up one morning and say, huh, you know, let's let's go out and eat breakfast, Elliot, and present all day. Nobody says that. That's problem number one. Problem number two is all of those presentations are never tied to something you're really passionate about. It's never... Hey, Elliot, what do you want to present? Do you want to talk about fitness? Do you want to talk about personal growth, development, open-mindedness, media? What excites you? No, you have to talk about Shakespearean poetry, and you don't really have a choice in the matter. So that's problem two. And finally, problem three, every single presentation, Elliot, is tied to a punishment. So if you don't do a great job, not only do you not get a pat on the back, you get a slap in the face, and you get lower grades. So what's the conclusion? We grow up believing, Elliot, that communication is a chore. So it becomes one. And nobody wants to get better at doing the dishes. That makes a lot of sense. I never realized how traumatic the experience can be and how long lasting it can be. So when I look at my personal experience, when I was thinking about the conversation we're going to have today, I was like, if you put me in a position where I had to present in front of a thousand people, yeah, I would have those normal nerves. But at the same time, I came to the conclusion that if I was presenting on something that I was super competent with and maybe even my story or something along those lines, I would do a pretty okay job. Obviously, let's put me in front of a thousand people and find out, but I feel like I would do a pretty good job. But as you've mentioned, we don't get to choose the criteria. And if, for example, it went terribly, there would be no consequence for me. It would just be like, well, Elliot did a bad job. Maybe someone's got a few uh, videos for social media that we can laugh at. But realistically, there's nothing terrible there. But when you're a child, the school system is basically your entire life. It's linked to your popularity. It's linked to how your parents are going to see you in a certain way as well. And that's why the stakes are so high. And when you're so impressionable as a young child as well, do you think that we could do more? And maybe that's something that's going to be part of your mission in the future to take that pressure off children. And maybe someone like yourself comes into schools, gives people an idea of how to do it. Or maybe we can maybe present them with subjects that they actually enjoy presenting on, which might lead us to be a little less traumatized by these early situations. I love that pretext and that question, Elliot. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't even think I'm required, honestly. I think the 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 key, and you actually hinted at it in your question, is really just finding a solution to those three bottlenecks. So let's recap. 
So if something's mandatory, how do we make communication feel like it's optional and fun? Like sports, using this podcast as an example. That's why a lot of guys especially grew up loving sports, uh, watching sports with their dad or their family or their friends, because the memories they have as a kid about sports, whether it's footy, whether it's cricket, it doesn't matter what it is, is really positive. But if somebody was playing footy and I was throwing the football in their face every time they miss the ball, would they want to grow up loving footy? Of course not, right? They would have terrible memories. So what is to change those memories? And the way you can do this is, sure, there's some presentations you have to tie to your grade, fair enough, but there needs to be space in the education system where you're you're being taught how to speak and it's a judgment-free zone, where you just get points for doing it. So for example, let's say we take the random word exercise, which is one of the exercises I teach. You take a word like silver cup, like a mouse pad, like stand-up desk, and you create random presentations out of thin air. But with kids, all you have to do, Elliot, is you clap at whatever comes out of their mouth. Oh my god, you're so talented, Jason. Great job, Julia. That's how you fix problem number one. Problem number two is you never get to pick something you're passionate about. Easy fix. Pick something you really care about. Let them pick. That's not 18 plus, obviously. And then the third bottleneck is punishable. So the key is to try and create an environment that's fun and creative. And that's actually how I started a lot of my career. I trained five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, nine-year-olds on how to speak and communicate in public. And that taught me a lot about life. What was the main difference between the five, seven, and nine-year-olds you taught compared to the 20, 30, 40, 50-year-olds that you teach today? I would say the biggest difference is one open-mindedness. So when you're young, you just listen to what your parents tell you to do or what adults tell you to do. So if I go up to a five-year-old and I go, Julia, it's time for you to do the random word exercise. She goes, okay, cool, right? And and the other piece is they'll react how you react emotionally. So when you're with little kids, if they're presenting like garbage, but you're laughing and you're smiling and you're clapping for them, in their mind, they think they're amazing. They go, oh, well, if Brendan thinks I'm amazing, I'm probably amazing. Whereas the sniff detector with, with adults is a little different. They're a lot more closed-minded. And even if I give them a genuine compliment, they don't take it. They go like, ah, oh, but I can never become a great speaker. So there's a lot more limiting beliefs to work through. That's probably the main difference I've seen throughout kids and, and adults. The second one, if I had to pick another one, is usually when somebody's five, six, seven years old, they haven't felt the fear of communication just yet. But when I coach 10, 11, 12-year-olds, they have a lot more fear because they've already been through that horror story in the education system. It's already starting to stick. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that would go in many of the different things that you teach younger children compared to what you teach adults is that they're not used to being new at anything. They're not used to failing at something or they definitely have this really negative relationship with failure or doing anything new for the first time. So it makes a lot of sense as well. So I want to come back to maybe away from the fears now and on to the positive of becoming an effective communicator. So how does someone become in the top 1% of communicators, Brendan? For sure, Elliot. And it actually ties into a third difference that I forgot to mention earlier about kids is simplicity. So when I am coaching a five-year-old, I'm going, hey, talk about a presentation or give a presentation. She literally comes up to me, Elliot, and goes, Brendan, what's a presentation? <laughs> and I go, well, uh, it has an introduction and a conclusion and a body. So naturally, she's going to follow up again. Brendan, what's an introduction? What's a conclusion? What's a body? So I had to really simplify a lot of my ideas, which actually bridges well into the question you just asked around, how do we actually achieve this goal of being a top 1% communicator? And I'll make analogies with fitness and health, which is communication is like juggling 18 balls at the same time. 
right? So one of those balls is storytelling. One of those balls is body language. One of them is smiling. One is vocal tone variety, pacing. And it could get really confusing really quickly, like in health and fitness. Yeah, you got to walk. Yeah, you should exercise more often. But it's also, what are the reps that you should take? What's the intensity of the training? How many times a week should you practice? People over are complicated, right? Oh, how customized should the diet plan be? How much carbs should I eat? So if we focus too much on all of the 18 balls to become like a bodybuilder or to become a top 1% communicator, of course we're going to get lost. So the question to ask whether it's fitness or communication or any skill that we want to learn, Elliot, is out of those 18 balls, what are the three easiest ones to chuckle? Except in health and fitness, these three balls are a lot more obvious. It's probably, and I'm no expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably eat less junk food, eat better food and exercise more often, right? So if you do that for a month, you'll probably lose a pound. Probably. Or more. more <laughs> or more, yeah, probably more. But the problem, Elliot, is that simplicity does not exist in communication. So I had to start from scratch and create that. So I call them my three balls. And then I'll, 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 I'll jump to the first and second. I'll throw it back to you. So the first one, we don't have to touch on too much because we already talked about it, which is the random word exercise. Pick a word like light bulb, like home, like hat. Create random 60-second presentations out of thin air. Do this five minutes a day. Can you give us an example? Absolutely. I'm going to give you Happy something to. in the room that I can see. Plant, plant pot. Plant pot? Amazing. So people are listening to this podcast. Elliot did not give me the word plant pot prior to this conversation, so I will demonstrate the exercise right now. Growing up as a kid, Elliot, so many people told me to have plants in my house, whether it's in a plant pot, whether it's in some other pot, but to really have plants throughout your home because it really helps your environment become breathable. But you know the reason why I've never done it is because I'm not consistent. If I have a plant in my house, it'll probably end up dying eventually because I'll forget to water it. But in the same way that sometimes in life, we forget to water our plant pots or the plants in our house, I think there's something more important than plants, which is our life. Sometimes in our life, we forget to water the most important things in our life, whether it's our health, whether it's our fitness, whether it's the relationships that we care so much about, whether it's the money goals that we have in our life, our career goals, we forget to water the plants of our life. So I encourage all of you to rethink and prioritize which plants in your life need watering. And no, I'm not talking about the actual plants in your living room. I'm talking about the most important things in your life that you're ignoring, that you're choosing not to put water on. Or when you do, it's dirty and it's not the right kind of water. So I encourage you to take a step back and to make the right decisions to water the garden of your life. There you go. Random word exercise. Round of applause to Brendan. That was incredible. It got very philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. So continue. Random word exercise. We can see the effectiveness of that. And what are some of the other keys? So, so one point that I want to drive that I'm glad you brought up for me to do the exercise is don't compare yourself to me. You know, I'm sure some of you are listening to this podcast and going, oh my God, like what did Brendan just do? Like, like if I got plant pot, I'd probably just go, uh, pot plant is in my basement, I guess. I don't know how to make a presentation out of this. So the first rule is we don't compare ourselves to Brendan because Brendan's done it 3,000 times. And I'm not exaggerating that number. 3,000 times. That's why I'm good at it. Not because I'm special. Not because I'm important. It's because I do it a lot. Kind of like... In fitness, we don't reward the person who just goes to the gym. We reward that person, but we admire the one who goes to the gym 300 days out of the year. 
That's the person we admire. So it's the same thing in speaking. The first hundred times, they don't count the random word exercise. You only get points for doing it. It's kind of like in fitness. If I asked you to do five squats and then I go, you know what, Elliot? You've done five squats. You're good for the rest of your life. Let's move on to the rest. You never have to do another squat for the rest of your life. Notice how silly that sounds in fitness. Whereas we apply that same rationale in public speaking. So don't stop after five or four or three or even one. Keep pushing for a hundred. So that's exercise one. Book five minutes in your calendar every day for three weeks. You'll hit a hundred. Number two, and then I'll throw it back to you, is the question drill. We get asked questions all the time in our life, Elliot. All the time. At school, at work, on a podcast like this. Yet most of us are not prepared for the questions that life has in store for us. I'll give you an example with me. A few years ago, when I started guesting on podcasts, I was lost. I sucked. I remember some guy came up to me and said, hey, Brendan, where does the fear of communication come from? The exact same question you asked me earlier on. But at the time, I didn't know the answer. So I looked at the guy and I said, uh, I don't know, man. London? Uh, New York City? You tell me. Like, I don't know where it comes from. So how did I fix this? Every single day, Elliot, for five minutes, I answered one question that I thought the world would ask me about my expertise, my products, or my services. So day one was, what tips do you have for insurance? Day two was, how do you work on your facial expressions? But if all of us just did that for five minutes a day, for a year, we'll have answered 365 questions about our industry, and we'll be bulletproof. Yeah, that's powerful. I've never heard that exercise before. I had a look at your YouTube channel before, so I heard the random word exercise, but answering the questions about your industry and getting rock solid on the topic. And even it doesn't have to be the work that you do, right? If you're in school, if you're studying something, you can ask. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, the word simplicity, come back to basics. Like if someone didn't know about the subject, what questions would they ask? And then getting really, really good at those. And I think it comes back to the earlier statement we make as well of being a coach and becoming a good coach is that you are able to relay that information so simply, so easily, and so digestible for people that they have no way of not understanding it. And once you're able to do that, then you're flying, you're confident. And obviously things just roll off your tongue easier, I should imagine. Very well said once again, Elliot. Absolutely. And the only other part to that is how do you generate the questions? You can come up with yourself, but you could also ask your friends. Like I'm practicing it now because you're coming up with the questions for me. So if there's one I don't know, I'll go, huh, that's pretty good. I should probably make a TikTok on that. That's a good point. Good, well played by Elliot. And, and I'm always practicing the question drill. But for those of you listening, it might not be guessing on a podcast. It could simply be, hey, let me find my friends and have them ask me questions about being a doctor or being a physiotherapist or being, you know, whatever your career is. And then over time, you just master those questions and you brainstorm the answers together too. So it's fun. You don't have to do this alone. I want to come back to one thing you mentioned there, which was introverts. And I imagine, and I also imagine prior to this conversation, that public speaking, being able to communicate comes back to a lot of confidence. And the people who usually do it so well are those who are super charismatic. They have an unbelievable amount of character. They own a stage. And then you start to think, well, that's not me. You know, I'm a little bit more introverted. I'm maybe not so charismatic. I get into a room and I 
wonder if people are bored whilst I'm speaking to them. How do we get those type of people to get to a position where they feel a lot more confident about their communication and their presentation when they look at other people who are just owning stages? You know, I saw that you did a video on Gary Vee and he's the person who comes to my mind when I think of like owning a stage and keeping everyone's attention. And a lot of people who are thinking, well, I can't own the attention of two people in a room, let alone 10,000 people who I'm presenting to. Absolutely, Elliot. So I always like to spin this question on its head. So I always like to talk about why are introverts better communicators than extroverts in some settings? So I'll give three main arguments to that. The first one, because I look at communication holistically, not just from a speaking perspective on the stage. That's one element of it, but we'll get into those weaknesses later. So the first one is pausing, knowing how to pause, take a beat is one of the most important skills, if not the most important skill, when you communicate in a conversation, on a stage, in any setting. And extroverts suck at pausing because they love talking, including me. That's why I'm a great guest on a podcast, but I'm a horrible host. Horrible. Because I just want to hear myself talk all the time. That's, <laughs> that's why I love being a podcast guest. So I don't pause as much as I need to. Introverts are exceptional at pausing, Elliot. And the reason is because they talk less on average. They live in silence. So it's easier for them when I'm coaching. Probably 80% of my clients are introverts, maybe 70. So whenever I'm coaching those those people on pausing, they pick it up so quickly. Whereas with, with, uh, with extroverts, oh my God, it is very difficult. Because when they're at a party and there's a pause... And nobody's saying anything. And you feel that silence. They automatically want to feel yeah. it. Exactly. So you got it. You got it. Introverts are, are very good at just keeping on staring into your eyes. So that's one. Two ties into listening that you do you do a very good job at, right? Taking the little nuggets of what I'm saying and then readjusting the questions to fit the the narrative that's created on the on the show. So it's the same thing with introverts in general. Because they speak less on average, they'll listen more. So it's a lot easier for them to adapt whatever you're saying. Whereas since I like to hear myself talk and yap all the time, it took me years to get really good at listening and to say, like, is my message actually landing for the people I'm trying to serve? So that's number two. And then the third piece is not well known either. It's accessibility. Introverts are more accessible as communicators and more relatable than extroverts are. And I'll use the example you just gave, which is Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary V. You either love the guy or you don't. So there's no in-between with this guy. So you either love him like I do. That's why he's on the channel, right? Featured him. I'm a big fan of his work. Or you go, oh my God, I'm never taking this guy 10 meters or no, forget 10 meters, 10 miles, 10 kilometers away from my kids. Like there's no way I'm going to put him around. He's swearing all the time. He's crazy. That's the problem with being an extrovert. When you're too extroverted, you alienate a large percentage of the population. But nobody hates Brene Brown. There is nobody in the history of humanity, Elliot, who has uttered the following words. I hate Brene Brown. If you say that, the FBI, the CIA, the SWAT team are going to barrage your house, kidnap your entire family. And as you get the idea, I'm obviously kidding. But the point is, is when you're an introvert, you're more accessible to people. So what's my advice? My advice is understand your strengths, triple down on them and realize you're just as powerful as any extrovert is at speaking. Absolutely. And as you've mentioned, you've just flitted on his head. You've mentioned that extroverts are maybe not the most gifted public speakers. They're probably gifted in talking, but maybe they're not gifted in communicating effectively, articulating their points as well as they would like to. So if you're someone who does like to fill every single silence, how can you get a little bit more comfortable with the gaps 
like that one between the senses, for example, and get more comfortable when they're on stage, for example, and not feel the need to say something at every single moment and pack those 20 minutes full of every single word they can. Absolutely, Elliot. Pausing is like a muscle that you work on like you do at the gym. It's not an overnight process. It's an overtime process, except the way that you work on your pausing muscle is going to be different than doing reps at the gym. Because at the gym, it's, okay, you do these, this many sets, and then over time, you see results. But in speaking, it's an exercise called the endless gaze. So the endless gaze is where you pick somebody in your house, somebody you love. You sit them down in front of you, and you stare into their eyes for three minutes. Minutes without saying a single word. You can blink, but you're not allowed to talk. And I've done this with married couples. And they cannot last three minutes. It's that hard. But the magic to this exercise is it gets you real comfortable real fast with pausing for long periods of time. So when you get back to presenting and you're giving presentations, it's really easy to pause for two to three seconds. You don't have to pause for three minutes in the real world, but that exercise prepares you for an easier life in the real life. Yeah, I've heard you touch on a few times that making things harder, much, much harder, or much kind of on the extreme end of things will make coming back to the thing that seemed hard in the first place way, way easier. So that's something I've definitely taken away from your work. And maybe I'll ask you for a few examples later. But I want to touch on the married couple side of things as well. I can imagine that a lot of them had many challenges with staring into each other's eyes. And I'm curious, obviously, we've spoke a lot about public speaking, presenting, but that might not be too much of someone's life. They might do maximum of 10 people on a Zoom call, but they're not going to be stepping on stage anytime soon. So if we are to take away some of the keys that you've mentioned today in terms of the bigger picture of public speaking and becoming an effective communicator, how often do these practices and these techniques transfer into our real day-to-day lives with our friends, with our family, with our loved ones? Here, here's the way I think about it. Communication is a multiplier effect. So when, when you accomplish one goal, it actually serves a multiple purposes in your life. Let me give you a simple example of what I mean here. So if we talk about the random word exercise, pick a word like cup, create a random presentation out of it. So you would think in the surface level, oh, Brendan, this only helps me with my presentations, right? And that would not be true. That would be false. It also helps you with small talk. Think about it. You're at an event, you're at a bar, you're at a conference, you're at a house party, and somebody comes up to you and wants to make small talk, and you're just like, how am I going to get through this? But because you've done the random word exercise so many times, you talk about avocado toast and home and doorknob, just a bunch of nonsense. It's actually really easy for you to like think on your feet. So if you ever meet me in person, you start talking, you'll notice I'm really fast to like make small talk. You'll say something completely random that, that I've never seen in my life and I can find a way to make it work with some similarity I have. And anyone who's done the random word exercise a lot can actually develop this secret skill. Same thing with ball number three that we haven't touched upon yet that I'll comment on now, which is sending video messages to your loved ones. So you take out your phone, you send a 20 second video message, just 20 seconds to just say how much you appreciate somebody in your life. So for you, one one good way, and it makes me a lot of money, so it might help you, is you do this with your clients. On their birthday, I put a birthday hat on, like a stupid hat that I literally bought, and I go, guess whose birthday it is? It's yours! I hope you have a beautiful day. I'm so grateful that I had the chance to work with you or that I'm currently working with you, and I hope you're on a wonderful day. I get so much word of mouth, so much referrals just from that video message, 
But it's more than just business, right? It's also sending it to your mom, sending it to your grandfather who lives on the other side of the country or even in a different country. And the only rule to that is you're not allowed to retake the video. So bringing this back to what you said, Elliot, about the general public, you don't need to post on social media. You don't need to have a coaching business like Elliot does. This is about making other people's day better. Just sending video messages, and it makes you more comfortable in general with uh, with uh, virtual presentations. Yeah, I can imagine that sincerity comes across because you don't have the opportunity to retake the video, right? And I think people do buy into that vulnerability. It doesn't look super polished like it needs to for a YouTube video, for example. It's just coming from the heart and something that they weren't expecting to. So I think that combination of unexpectedness and sincerity probably goes a really, really long way as well. And I don't personally need this advice. I'm very, very happy in my relationship, but I'm sure it has a big tie over into dating as well. And so how does it make you better in the dates? I'm sure a lot of people are like, hmm, well, if I can communicate better to my loved ones and, you know, on a big public setting, maybe I can do better in these dates where there's always small talk on the table and I don't know how to get the conversation going or break the ice. Absolutely. And, and what I'll say will apply for dates as well, but just friendships in general, which is a tip that's so simple. And I think that's why I thought I had something worth sharing. And I'm like, why hasn't anyone said this? Which is simply... Make a list of five questions you wished other people asked you. And that could be anything. And just ask that to other people. And since most of us don't really try that on conversations, we'll just mirror back the questions that you ask them. So for example, if I go, I don't ask, like for example, somebody meets me in person, don't ask me about the weather. I don't care about the weather. Just look outside, right? So it's like, like how's the weather? I was like, I don't know, whatever the weather is. But I'll ask something like, hey, what do you like to nerd out about? What are you passionate about? What are you excited about? What's something that you're grateful for this week? But when I ask these types of questions, which is the ones that I would rather answer, people always go, what about you? What about you? What about you? So you basically just have a, you get to have a conversation with your own questions, which is, which is super cool and super easy to do. So that's, that's the tip there. And how do you come across being authentic and not like a hostage negotiator because you're going to give this tip to someone and they're going to ask 21 questions within this time frame of about 20 minutes and the person's going to come away thinking they had a really heavy job interview versus a date <laughs> that very, very good objection you're bringing up elliot here's the way i think about it so you start with the first question which won't feel like a hostage negotiation by any means unless you ask it really aggressively like what do you like to nerd out about it's okay just take a take a deep breath and Back up a little. But then usually what I like to do is when somebody starts talking, it doesn't actually matter what they respond. I always like to reply with, why is X important to you? So for example, let's say I ask somebody, what are you really passionate about? And the girl goes, or the guy, it doesn't matter. I love, I love baking cakes. It's always been my passion. Why is baking cakes important to you, Julia? And then, and then it just goes, oh, well, no one's asked me that. Oh, the reason why it's important is, and then they go into this childhood story and you just listen to them. And then usually the best questions are often follow-ups on the little details. You're actually doing this really well here, where you take a small little detail and you follow up with the information with another question. So I think the key here is pausing vocal variety and realizing that quantity is in the game here. It's quality. It's quality. So it's about getting them to talk 
and saying less with less questions and listening more. Mm. And so these same principles apply when you're going back and forward on a messaging app, for example, because that's where dating is typically done. And that's where a lot of our communication full stop is done. And you might not pull out your 20 second video to the first match on Tinder. So I'm just wondering, would you be able to use these principles in the written word as well as the spoken? So I'm not a dating expert, but you know what I would say to, to that? I would try and get that conversation on the phone as quickly as possible because mm. relationships are not meant to be text-based, right? What are you going to do, text your partner for the next 40 years? What are you going to have kids and text to at the same time? <laughs> that makes no sense, right? So when I start dating, which I'm not, that's why I'm saying I'm not an expert in it. That's what I plan on doing. If I, if I use the apps, like as soon as I match with somebody, I'll, I might do one or two banters, but after that, it's going to be like, Hey, like, what are you free for a call? Like, let's just talk. Right. That's the whole point. Right. And then you get into, into the key there. I love that. That was honestly, I'm giving away my secrets here, but honestly, always my technique was to see how soon can I meet this person in person for a coffee in a low stakes environment so I can figure out whether this is going to be a good use of my time or not. Right. Like as much as it sounds pretty harsh, it's like, well, I would rather know within five days if we're actually going to go anywhere with this versus taking five weeks of messaging someone like that's exhausting and that's not something i want to invest my time in so in terms of getting someone on the phone or getting someone out for a coffee i think that that can be better advice that we're both giving here absolutely and, and let me defend what you said because i don't think that's harsh at all i think you're actually helping women a lot by doing this yeah, well i mean true. not anymore because you're in a relationship but i mean in the context that you drove which is like you're, you're doing them a favor because the the problem i hear with from a lot of my friends who are women is like they always get dragged in they have no idea what the intention is like what what do you see me as they have no idea where this is going and they're looking for some leadership so give them some leadership and save them time you know it makes their life easier yeah, I didn't expect to go down the route of dating so much, but whilst I'm on this topic, and I think that this kind of spreads into just about everything, it even spreads into some of the questions I might ask. As a podcast host, someone might really dislike me because I don't speak concisely enough. You're like, well, you've brought on a guest, so maybe you should just be a little quieter and maybe not say as many words as you need to. So it comes into many different areas of life and it comes back to speaking concisely. So I've always got to find this blend between injecting my personality, injecting my point when it's valuable, and also asking the shorter questions as well. And I think myself and a lot of people I speak with, maybe when they're doing social media, for example, or maybe when they're going to have a difficult conversation, have that challenge of speaking concisely, not saying too much and just packing all these words into a sentence. It comes back to what we said about the extroverts as well. How do we overcome that challenge of not saying too much, but also not saying enough? So the problem with learning how to speak concise or being more concise in general is it's too broad of a of a problem to solve because being concise is always contextual to the context you're speaking in. I'll give you an example. Trying to be con concise as a podcast host is a completely different set of rules than being concise as a podcast guest, which is also a different set of rules to being concise on a date to being concise in a committed relationship, to being concise in a boardroom, and we could play this game all day long, but you get the idea. So, so the magic trick here to get really good at being concise is to get really good at one context at a time. So your goal should never be, how do I be more concise? Wrong question. 
the right question should be, what is the context that I'm most motivated to practice the most when communicating more concisely? So in your case, I'm going to make it obvious for you because it's obvious to me since you're a coach, it's your sales calls because that's where you're spending a lot of time prospecting for new clients. Might be a little bit different with fitness because your longevity is higher because somebody always wants a trainer if they're getting results with you. Might not be the case, depends. But if you're on sales calls a lot, you want to be concise. You want to learn how to ask concise questions because you want to dominate that room. So your goal should just be, how do I be a 10 there? Then we move on to the second context, which is being a podcast host. How do you be more concise there? And then you get into a lot more granularity, which is different than the sales call. Because on the sales call, I'll say, Elliot, what does your script look like? What types of questions are you asking? The question one, two, and seven, dude, why are you asking these questions? It's such a waste of time. And I'll throw those questions out. But if I'm teaching you how to be more concise as a host, I'll have a completely different opinion because I'll say something something more like, you know, Elliot, the reason people are listening to your show is not because of me. It's because of you because I am being interviewed by 200 different hosts. So the reason that audience members listening to that specific show has nothing to do with the guest, but has everything to do with you, Elliot. So the question then becomes, what do you want your style as an interviewer to be? And that's something you figure out internally. So there's other people who like to interrupt a lot and do really well, like a Larry King is a good example. And then you have an Oprah Winfrey who doesn't like to interrupt at all and who keeps really quiet and she's just as successful. So then it be can being concise becomes more of a question of style. So I hope that uh, detail makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as you've mentioned, it's always context dependent because if, if I don't say enough and if I ask one word questions or if you give me one word answers, I should say, the interview is going to fall flat on its face. However, if it's a concise meeting between friends or between colleagues where information just needs to be delivered in an effective and quick way, and you already have the context that you're good friends with that colleague, you're good friends with this person, and you don't actually need to give everything behind it to make sure that your personality is expressed, it doesn't really matter. You can forego on the extra words and you can just be like, yes, no, and just be done with it. Whereas if it goes into this conversation, I'm just saying yes or no. I'm like, good, Brendan. We'd just be here staring at each other and it only last about five minutes long as well. So yeah, no, I really like that as well. And I think the main context I want to go to is maybe when people are in those situations where they may be talking to a senior figure in their work, they may be asking for a little more support at work or they're asking for a potential promotion or an increase in pay that must come a lot to the work that you do how do we manage those situations not bombarding the person with a ton of reasons why we need this or we then end up maybe backtracking and talking ourselves out of what we said in the first place how do we stop ourselves and be calm in those type of situations and get our message across in the most effective way for sure elliot so a couple of different thoughts there so I'll comment on the two most common one. One is salary negotiation, and the second one is how to run meetings more effectively. So let's get into meetings, which is a simple idea. The biggest problem with people in meetings is they just talk all over the place. So somebody asks you, like a senior executive, what's the update this week? And you go, oh, like I talked to IT and IT told me this, and then I talked to operation, then operations told me that, then I talked. So they're kind of all over the place. Instead of focalizing the conversation on what are the three points that my manager cares the most about, which is probably the project I'm on, if there's anything urgent or if they need any support from them. 
It's probably the main three. Okay, boom, 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 list them out. And then you always close your share with, is there anything else you'd like me to focus on more in depth in today's conversation? And they'll direct you. They'll go, these are the three. Actually, can you talk about number seven? I don't care about the other points. Then you mention it. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks, Elliot. This is great. They leave. So you have to think like an executive. That's how you master that. Ask yourself what's important to them, what matters to them, not what you're working on what matters to them in the context of what you're working on, which is completely different. That's one. Salary negotiations is a little different. I take a safer approach to this, which is I always recommend people who have jobs just interview at other places. Always be interviewing for other jobs. Not necessarily because you're going to leave, but more so to understand what is the market willing to pay you in, in regards to the skill set that you have. So let's say I'm making 70 grand at a company and I love working there and it's great. And I interview for a competitor and at that point, I can highball them because I have a job. So I have all the leverage in the world. And I'm able to, I'm able to bump it up to 95. So you have two options in that in this case. And unfortunately, people pick the wrong option here. The first option is you go back to your employer and you say, hey, this person's paid me 95. Either raise my salary or I'm getting out of here. That's a terrible, terrible way of approaching it. And a lot of people do that, which is a big mistake. So you want to opt in for option two. Option two is you ask for a meeting with your manager and you say something along the lines of, hey, I really love working here. I want to stay here. I love the opportunities here. I love the team here. You know, I just noticed though the market value of what I'm delivering for this company is $25,000 less than what other organizations are willing to pay me. Is there any other responsibilities, anything that I could do? I'd love your perspective on this, Elliot. Is there anything that I could do to live up to the salary expectation that I now have at this company? What's your opinion? How can I get there? So now you're having a much more thoughtful conversation, and then the boss will go out of their way to make sure there's either a match on the salary or that they give you a set, clear roadmap to keep you around. So that's the way you do it. It's just most people make a mistake with it. Yeah, I like that. It's not going in all guns blazing. It's more the sense of almost giving them the opportunity to give you the answer versus coming with this like high-stakes yes or no and essentially leaving yourself in a position where their defenses are going to go up, right? If you go in and you say, I love working for this company, you start to lower their defenses and put their guards out a little bit and then go in and ask something that's super reasonable versus going in with quite a standoffish vibe. I feel that, yeah, the outcome of that is at least going to be a lot more pleasant. It's probably going to feel a lot less nerve-wracking as well, right? Going into that conversation is going to feel far less high stakes than you would have done if you're just going in and saying, I'm taking this or, or I'm out of here as well. So I really like that as well. And as we come into the end of the interview, I want to go through some things that maybe are not often spoken about. Some of those tips and tricks that only you, Brendan, would know from all the work that you've done with people. What are some of the things that you've noticed that are tripping people up when it comes to their communication that maybe we haven't heard so much about in today's conversation? Honestly, Elif, it's the same thing that trips us off in our fitness. The tips are simple at the end of the day. The problem is we don't implement them. That's the biggest problem. The best way to speak is to speak. If there's anything you take away from this conversation, it's the following. Are you booking 15 minutes in your calendar every single day to do the easy threes? The random word exercise takes one minute to do. So if you do it five times, it's literally five minutes. I demonstrated it today, right? But plant pot, I just did that for like 90 seconds or something. Five minutes. Question drill. Pick one question and reflect on it for five minutes. You're done. And finally, number three, pick three people you love. Send them a video message. Share them you care. 
Show them you really appreciate them. Heck, if you don't want to send three, send one. Start with one. I have never met a single human being in my life, Elliot, that I haven't coached on this, that have not been able to do this consistently for 30 days. So if you're listening to this and all you do is those three exercises and you don't quit for 30 days, you'll be ahead of 99.9999% of people listening to the podcast right now. Absolutely. I love that. And the final question I have is not necessarily on the words that come out of our mouth, but it's the involuntary cues it's our non-verbal communication and i feel like we need to touch on that before we do wrap up today because of you hear a lot of quotes about communication is x percent of what you say and x percent of how you convey it essentially right and i don't want to put any bizarre percentages on either of those <laughs> statements because it's the same as fitness it's like if someone says ah nutrition is 90 percent," it's like well you know it all comes back to the context but how important are these cues that are non-verbal yeah you're absolutely right in that that nuanced way you asked the question elliot because i mean the real numbers out there right now is 93 7 so people think 93 percent of of communication is non-verbal seven percent of it is verbal but the problem with that statement i've always found i'm not saying that's factually inaccurate i don't really know to be honest but my problem is what do we do with that like what do i do with that information to get better at speaking and the answer is who knows so for me, the, the big idea to nonverbal, 80% of the game for me in nonverbal is your face. So there's three parts to your face. Because a lot of the things, actually, let me tackle the rest. Your hands, it's not that hard for you to make, I mean, sorry, it's really hard for you to make mistakes with your hands. Like, okay, maybe the mistake is you put your hands in your pockets, don't do that. But a lot of people aren't moving their hands like a circus, so it's not really that big of a deal. And your posture is usually straight. If not, you know, just straighten up a little bit more. But 80% of nonverbal is really the face. So for example, I'll give you the biggest mistake. When somebody is listening, not talking, when somebody's listening, they don't smile. So when, let's say I'm listening, obviously it's tougher on audio, but obviously you can see my face here. If I'm going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm not smiling. I'm I'm psychologically giving you the impression indirectly that I don't care about what you're saying. Versus if I smile just a little bit and I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it shows that my interest. So smiling is the biggest thing to fix. The second one is the eyes. If your eyes are too closed when you're speaking, it, you look a little high, <laughs> right? You look like you're kind of lost and you're sleepy. So you got to open your – you don't have to do this. You don't have to open your eyes super wide. But just a little bit to show some enthusiasm. And I do this automatically, but I see with some people, their eyebrows, and it looks really creepy, but it's just people aren't able to give the feedback because they don't know what to say. Is the problem is your eyebrows are too stuck when you speak. So whenever you speak and you're talking, you're talking, and you're talking, your face looks really stiff versus when you notice here, when I open my eyes, my eyebrows move automatically. So I look way more expressive whenever I talk. So just focus on those three things and you'll look way more expressive in general, just a few small tweaks. Yeah, I was going to say that's huge for a conversation like this as well, because if we are in little boxes right now and the same on a Zoom call, for example, where a lot of that communication is being done. So you've made a good effort to get your hands in. But for me to do this, I'm like worried if I'm going to touch the microphone or if I'm going to you know, knock my camera or something like that. So as you've mentioned, I think a big one is obviously the face and a little bit more conscious about what's going on there. And with speaking in the mirror to get an idea of what your face actually looks like when you're communicating with someone be helpful i imagine obviously it's one thing to talk to yourself but let's say you're having a phone call for example an audio-based phone call could you speak to yourself in the mirror or speak to them in the mirror and look at what your face is doing yeah i, I think that's a that's a good approach
approach. I've always found feedback is just easier. Sure. Like, let's say if you're on an online call, like the one we're on now, maybe I tell you after the show, hey, maybe you got to smile a little bit more and you're listening or something like that, right? So I think it's just easier to call it out. In terms of the, the mirror, the recording yourself, I'm not against that advice. The only reason I push back is it's just more friction for people to implement. Like the way my mind works is if somebody isn't willing to do the random word next to us alone in their bathroom with nobody else watching, I don't see them practicing in front of the mirror and going like, how are my facial expressions right now? Because that's like ball number five or ball number seven relative to ball number one. So for me, kind of the lining thread here is don't even touch the question drill until you've done a hundred random word exercise, unless, you, unless you're unless you committing to that 15 minute challenge where you do all three at the same time. But really to keep it even simpler, maybe the first couple of sprints of your 15 minute daily practice is just the random word exercise. And then 10 days later, when you've done it a hundred times, just do the question drill for 15 minutes a day. And in a month, you'll have answered three questions a day, 90 questions in a month. Then go to the video message, send a hundred video messages. But the trick is not to move on to the next ball until you've mastered the previous one absolutely i love that advice brendan this has been an incredible incredible conversation i want to wrap up with the final two questions that i have for you and the first is what impact do you want to have on the world with the work that you do yeah, for sure, Elliot, and I'll tell you it through a story. So the story is about Taylor Swift. She wins an award in 2014 called Women of the Year. It's a, it's a music company called Billboard that gives it out. And she stands up on the stage as she receives the award. And she looks at the crowd and says, your future Woman of the Year is 10 years old right now. And she has big dreams to be a singer. She's in choir. She's learning how to play piano. And we need to take care of that girl. And then seven years later, the TikTok that I'm watching kind of flips, and Billie Eilish becomes the youngest woman in history to win Woman of the Year at the age of 17. So she gets up on the stage, she's got her big jacket, she's got her bulky glass, and goes, uh, I don't know how I won this award, and she kind of just rambles for three minutes, and then her last 30 seconds really solidifies the impact I want to create in the world, Elliot. She looks at the stage and says... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was watching Taylor Swift's speech, too, in 2014 about, like, women of the year and, like, how the future woman is blah dee blah da And I was 10 years old. And I was learning how to speak. And I was learning how to sing and do choir. And all of you took care of me. So thank you. And the reason I tell you that story is because the second I heard that, I thought about the next Elon Musk, the next Oprah Winfrey. When they were 10 years old, Elliot, was anybody helping them with their communication skills? And the answer was absolutely not, right? Elon had a terrible childhood. He was being abused by his dad. Oprah was horrible childhood as well. Nobody was sitting these little kids down and going, hey, you're going to be a big star someday. You should probably watch these videos and get really good at communication. So I want to be that person for every single human being on earth how do i create communication tools that are so simple that are so accessible that are so easy to understand that every human beyond the on earth including every genius of our society learns for these videos for the rest of for the rest of life long after i'm gone i love the mission that you're on brendan and honestly this has been one of my favorite podcasts in the world so thank you so much for providing all the value today and if anyone wants to keep up with the work that you're doing and keep an eye on what you have to offer where can they find you for sure man you're super thorough as well this is such a treat for me so thanks for thanks for having me on 
two ways to keep in touch, man. The first one is the random, the random word. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> so the first way, to, the first way to keep in touch is the YouTube channel. Just type Master Talk in one word, and you'll have access to hundreds of free videos on how to speak and communicate ideas. And the second way to keep in touch is to come to one of my free communication workshops. So I do a free workshop over Zoom. That's online. It's free. It's 90 minutes. Everybody's invited to the call. And on that call, you'll learn a lot more about speaking that extends the podcast conversation. So an example would be, you'll see me apply those tips live on a call and you'll learn a lot more. So if you want to jump on it, go to rockstarcommunicator.com and just register for the next one. And if you do register, you might even see me there as well. There you go. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Brendan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for sharing everything that you have. And thank you for the work that you do. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.